0: Well, good evening. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this evening. Uh, In Paul's absence, I thought uh, that I would not tread on his territory and do a devotional out of the Psalms, as he usually does, but uh, that we would look elsewhere. And so uh, our subject this evening for this devotional is the subject of pure worship. Uh, And so we'll turn to this passage in John chapter 4 where Jesus interacts uh, with the the Samaritan woman at the well. But I want to begin by sharing uh, some thoughts on the subject of pure worship that come from Uh, A pastor friend of mine up in New Hampshire, uh, Pastor Scott Meadows at Calvary Reformed Baptist Church, Uh, he was speaking at a pastor's conference in New Jersey a number of years ago, and he spoke on this subject of pure worship. And so I want to, I'll share a couple of quotes of his throughout, but uh, we'll begin with this one. This was his introduction to the topic. He said, no topic is more important than pure worship. Since God's glory is the ultimate end of our being and nothing, therefore, should eclipse this in our ministry before God, he calls us by his word to serve him in this way, the way of pure worship. And by that, I mean nothing more or less than worship that is completely according to God's will. There is a fundamental conformity to God's will which is required for worship to be true worship at all but we wish to promote the reformation even of true worship so that it becomes more and more pure, growing ever greater in conformity to God's revealed will. And so that in the particulars of what it is, what it contains, what it lacks, how it is conducted and in everything about it, we are more and more pleasing to God himself. We glorify his name the most and we become better prepared to assume our place in that worship of the age to come already begun in this age by the grace of Christ and the gospel. Uh, So that's that's his introduction to the subject of pure worship and the fact that uh, as we seek purity in worship, we should be seeking to please God as we worship him uh, and giving a thought to the trajectory of our worship into uh, the eternal kingdom to come. And so we'll talk about that uh, from this passage in John 4. So this is Jesus' Uh, encountering this Samaritan woman at the well, uh, and he has this pretty broad-ranging conversation with her, and we're not going to read the whole thing, just a portion of it, but he's having this conversation with the woman uh, and enlightening her to her need for salvation from the promised Messiah, which of course is himself, Uh, and she's getting sort of uncomfortable with the conversation. Uh, She doesn't like the direction it's turning, uh, and so Uh, perhaps feeling convicted or whatever, she wants to change the subject. And so uh, she brings up this question of where should we worship? So we'll pick up there in verse 19 with this uh, inquiry of hers. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So There's kind of a question. She didn't form it in the form of a question, but there's sort of a question there. Where are we supposed to worship? On this mountain here in Samaria or on that mountain over in Jerusalem? And then verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So I want to spend a few minutes uh, meditating on five truths from these verses, particularly uh, from verse 23, which is really the core of uh, this part of the conversation. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now when Christ speaks here of true worshipers, he's indicating uh, the existence of false worshipers, right? Otherwise, he could just say worshipers. But when he puts that modifier, true worshipers, he's indicating that there are those who are worshiping but are doing so falsely. And, and we can see that, right? We know that the, the world is full of worshipers. Now, we all are worshipers. That's how we are created by God. Uh, John Calvin is famous for saying that the human heart is an idol factory. right? We're going to worship something, So the question is, are we true worshipers or false worshipers? And we see this each Wednesday night as we pray for the nations. And we look at the various nations that we're praying for, and it will tell us the population of the country, what their primary religion is, and what tiny percentage of that population is Christian. So this evening, uh, here in a few moments, we'll pray for the country of Indonesia. Uh, Indonesia, we'll see, has 277 million people, 277 million. Less than 3% of them are Christian. The rest of them are engaged in the false worship of Islam, the majority of them. So a lot of worship happening in Indonesia, but it's not true worship. It's false worship, worshiping a false god falsely. Uh, So Christ here is indicating that there are worshipers all throughout the world. Many of them are false. Some of them are true, Uh, and so even in his day, there are true worshipers, right? But what does he mean by true worshipers? Well, the word true uh, here means pertaining to what something should be. In other words, there is some sort of pattern or standard, and if this thing is true, then it matches the standard, it matches the pattern. Uh, It's genuine. Uh, And then a worshiper is someone who bows down. Right Someone who uh, falls face down on the ground, uh, the the Greek word is proskeneho, and it's where we get our English word prostrate, right to fall face down before someone. Uh, you can picture John's encounter with Christ in Revelation, chapter one, when he he hears a voice behind him, he turns. He sees the risen and glorified Christ. He gives us a description of Christ. And then he says in verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This was the response he had to seeing the glorified Christ was to prostrate himself before the glorious presence of the creator. Uh, But the word conveys more than just falling face down sort of in fear, but it includes this sense of Uh, kissing the the ring or kissing the hand of the sovereign. There's a sense of adoration there for the one that you are worshiping. So a true worshiper is someone who genuinely conforms to the image of what it means to worship God with both fear and adoration. Uh, And this is demonstrated by how they conduct themselves in their worship of God. So the question that we all might need to ask ourselves in light of this is, am I a true worshiper? Do I genuinely fear and adore Christ? Am I longing for his presence? Uh, Do I want to be in his presence, to see him face to face? And do I tremble at the thought of being face to face with my creator? Uh, Am I willing to humble myself before him, prostrate myself, eager uh, to uh, kiss his hand, as it were, to worship him as my Lord. Am I a true worshiper? The second thought that we could meditate on from this text uh, is that when we think of the subject of worship, uh, especially in our modern context, when we say worship, one of the first things that comes to people's mind is music. Right? We say worship and we immediately think of the music portion of the worship service, uh, although we might Think, okay, the whole worship service is worship, but worship has an eschatology, right? It has a trajectory, as Scott Meadows said in his opening remarks, uh, it's meant here and now to prepare us for the worship that we will participate in in the kingdom to come. Jesus said there in verse 23, the hour is coming in the future and now is in the present, When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Uh, So I think what he is saying is that there are true worshipers in the world at that moment, but they're going to multiply. Uh, The spiritual congregation of of God's people is going to grow. Uh, And of course, there were true worshipers in the world, right? We read our Bibles. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, these even these patriarchs in the Old Testament were true worshipers. They understood quite a lot. If you read some of their Psalms that David wrote, he understood that it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats uh, that, that purified him, that it was the grace of God that did that. And They were looking forward to the promised Messiah. They were true worshipers, but their numbers were somewhat limited under the Old Covenant. Most of Israel proved itself to be false. Uh, but at this moment in time, as Jesus speaks to this woman, the, the, the truest worshiper to ever walk the earth was standing right there in front of her, speaking to her. Uh, Christ said of himself in John 8, verse 29, he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. So in the incarnation, when he was in the flesh, everything he did was to the glory of God the Father, his Uh, conducted his entire ministry, his mission on earth, with that goal in mind, to glorify the Father who had sent him. Uh, Everything, every word that he spoke, every thought that he had, every deed that he did was done with the goal of glorifying the Father. Uh, And so there's an eschatology to our worship. Christ is intending to redeem a people for himself, that they would multiply, that the the church of Christ would grow in the world. And, And we look forward to what John sees in his vision in Revelation chapter 7 where he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude... Which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is is God. He's eternal. He already has the knowledge that this is happening in the future, that the church uh, will become this uh, body of people drawn from every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth. And so it could well be that when he is speaking to this woman, that's what he has in mind when he says the hour is coming. The church will grow, it will multiply, it will draw those who are redeemed out of every nation and these true worshipers will worship God together. And so we ought to meditate on that truth and think about that uh, as we worship and recognize that when we gather for worship on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, uh, we're joining together, not just amongst ourselves, but spiritually joining with the people of God throughout time and space, those who are gathered around the throne uh, in heaven now. Uh, we're joining together with them in the worship of God. Uh, so worship has an eschatology, it has a trajectory into the kingdom, uh, and remembering that will help us be aware of how weighty and significant it is when we gather to worship God together as his church. The third truth that we could meditate on from this passage is the object of our worship. Jesus says, But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. True worship, of course, is Trinitarian in nature. Uh, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to worship. We approach the throne of God in the name of Son, of the Son, who is our mediator and our representative, but it is the Father That we worship. Uh, God is clear throughout the New Testament that he would have us worship him as our father, Uh, not just trembling before his throne as pagans would before a vengeful God, but rather we worship him with grateful adoration. Uh, He is our loving Heavenly Father who is gracious and merciful to us. And so we would do well to meditate on that truth and to remember that when we worship, we are doing so as those who have been brought into relationship with God by the blood of Christ, uh, which is applied to us by the Holy Spirit so that we could be the children of God, that we could be sons and daughters of the King. And so when we worship God as our Father, we are doing so as Beloved children, children that he loves, that he has gathered to himself to be his family. He's renewing his image within us uh, and his name is to be on our lips, right? We're enabled by the Spirit to say Abba, Father. So as we worship, recognize that we are worshiping our good and our gracious heavenly Father. Our fourth truth from this verse to meditate on is that true worship is done in spirit and in truth. So what does Christ mean by this? Well, there are several senses, I think, in which uh, he means that true worship is in spirit. Uh, as he notes in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So if we're going to worship God, uh, and our worship has to be in accord with his very nature. He is spirit. He's the most pure spirit. And so our worship of him must be uh, spiritual in nature, right? We're not worshiping a physical God. We're not worshiping a piece of stone or a block of wood. We're worshiping a God who is spirit. And so our worship must be spiritual. Secondly, I think that true spiritual worship must therefore rise out of our heart, not merely from our outward actions, Our outward actions are important, and they are part of our worship, but they must be wedded to the posture of our heart. It's very possible to worship with our hands, with our actions, and not with our hearts, and that would be false worship. Spiritual worship must be more than the outward forms. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus chastises uh, the the Pharisees and the scribes for their worship because it's false. It's not uh, worship from the heart. And In Mark 7, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. The cup is clean on the outside, right? They look like they're worshiping God from all appearances, outward appearances, but their hearts were far from him. So uh, outwardly, our worship can look impressive, But if our hearts are not in it, if our hearts are not committed to worshiping God, uh, then it's just a show with no spiritual value, with no eternal value. Thirdly, um, I think part of what Christ is saying here is that the new covenant that is going to be inaugurated in his blood shortly after this, that the worship that is part of this new covenant is going to be distinctly different from that of the old covenant. Old covenant worship, Uh, should have been performed with fully engaged hearts. I mean Jesus quoted Isaiah there right from the old covenant but it did consist of elaborate outward forms uh, rituals and rites and I think that's what gave rise to her question right in verse 20. Well our father say to worship on this mountain you Jews worship on that mountain over there which is the correct location and Jesus says neither right? The, the, the question isn't about where you worship, it's about whether you're worshiping in spirit and in truth. The, the worship of the new covenant is greatly simplified from that of the old covenant. There are far fewer outward rituals and rites, uh, and those that we do have more clearly uh, represent the inward heart of the worshiper. Even, even the forms of the old covenant the sacrifices of the temple, those things were meant to represent Christ, to point forward to Christ. They were meant to represent uh, when a worshiper brought an offering, he's he's acknowledging that he's sinful, that he needs forgiveness. His sins are placed on the animal. It's killed in his place. right? So there's that's pointing forward to Christ and to his uh, death on our behalf. But in the new covenant, we have two rituals, basically. We have the Lord's Supper, and baptism. And both of those are clearly pointing. Baptism, our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, the Lord's Supper, His body and His blood shed for us. So they're clearer in what they're representing. That it was more shadowed and indistinct in the Old Testament. But sadly, many today even can still get lost in those outward forms and begin to think that the ritual itself has some power to save or to imbue the worshiper with grace. Right? This is the view of Roman Catholicism. that Baptism, actually, when you're baptized, cleanses you of original sin and Im- Im- imbues grace into you, and then you have to maintain that grace through other rituals as you go on. So they, they've missed the, the heart of what it's about because they're focused on the outward act. Uh, in tandem with worshiping in spirit uh, is to worship in truth. right? These are not two separate truths, these two things go hand in hand. To worship in truth is to worship uh, in accord with God's self-revelation through Christ in the Scriptures. Uh, it's, this is what uh, Pastor Meadows was addressing in the introductory remarks of his that I read, that our worship is to be in accord with how God has instructed us to worship Him. Uh, it's, our worship is rooted in God's revelation to us in the Scriptures. Not what we invent out of our minds or what we might like to do. Uh, of those man made elements of worship, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2 these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self imposed religion. Uh, other translations uh, call it will worship or self made worship, right? Uh, it has the appearance of wisdom, but Paul goes on to say it's of no value in actually worshiping God. Uh, Pastor Meadows, once again, he says this in, in his remarks at that conference Wholehearted, deliberate intention to please God and carry out his commandments to the letter is the mark of true worshipers and the reason Christ died for his elect. And here he quotes from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15 He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Right? That's. We've been saved by Christ. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. So if he has instructed us how we are to worship him, then we ought to worship him the way he is instructed and not the way we might want to do it. So we should consider our own worship. Is our worship coming from the heart, or is it? are we just going through the motions, Is it just outward act, or is it genuine, heartfelt worship? Are we seeking to please God in what we do, or are we just seeking to please ourselves? And then finally, we can see that Christ says the Father is seeking such worshipers. In verse 23 again, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And this should remind us that uh, it's God's grace that initiates worship in our hearts. As we're seeking to worship God uh, with our hearts and true spiritual worship, We can only do so because God has already wrought grace in our hearts. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. But then God seeks and God saves God initiates by His grace, He changes our hearts, and then He makes us desire to seek His glory and to worship Him in these ways. So we should remember that, that when we gather to worship, we're doing so because God, the Almighty, has sought us out and called us to be His children so that we might fix our hearts on Him who is the purest, holiest, most righteous being in existence. And he sought us out so that we could worship him. And the fact that he would seek us out to be worshipers uh, should fill our hearts with thanks and gratitude as we gather to sing his praises and to worship him uh, and through the use of his scriptures. And so uh, we'll close this evening with these words uh, from Pastor Meadows as he concluded his thoughts on pure worship at that conference. He said, who my brethren upon reading their Bible can doubt that God desires true and pure worship. When we evaluate worship in this world, our controlling considerations must be these. Is this what God desires, only what he desires and all that he desires? We should not even begin to ask questions such as, do I like it or will they like it or will it draw a larger crowd or will this expand our influence or a thousand other typical considerations people are raising in the modern debates about the substance and form of worship. People driven by these questions are self-condemned, proving that they do not understand even the first principles of true worship revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Unless and until pleasing God alone is our deep, foundational, unshakable conviction that actually controls our approach to worship, we cannot possibly be expected to arrive at anything like pure worship. So we should meditate on these truths and consider and ask ourselves, am I worshiping from the heart? Am I worshiping spiritually? Am I worshiping in a way that I'm desiring to please God rather than myself or the person in the pew next to me? Uh, Am I a true worshiper, worshiping in spirit and in truth? So that is our devotional for this evening, and I hope that uh, that gives you something to pray about and consider in your own life.